you could be very tired in the morning plugging in your coffee maker and you would be prevented from making that problem. So with that in mind, there are um, several things at the hospital that uh, kind of have that Pocoyoke uh, error-proofing concept uh, attached to them. The coffee is black and our oval is blue. Welcome to the Customer Experience Podcast, brewed fresh for you. I'm Phil. And I'm Matt. And this is Black and Blue. All right, Matt. You uh, did us the favor of bringing in the coffee today. We uh, have no idea what it is, so tell us about it. Absolutely. So take a sip. on, uh, Like we did last episode, I'll ask you for the tasting notes you're, you're getting okay. uh, when we're done here. But I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about our brew. So first of all, hey, wait, hey, cheers. We cheers first here. Ooh. So today's brew has a really interesting story behind it. Uh, and Fred from Accounting, if you're still following this podcast, uh, and you've never been to the Ford World Headquarters area, Dearborn is near an international border with Canada, the closest town of which is called Windsor, Ontario. Uh, in our first episode, we interviewed Kyle Bondi from Anchor Coffee House, which is located in Windsor. And one of his former employees launched his own coffee roastery in town called Chance Coffee. So today's cup comes from the local roaster of Windsor called Chance. Uh, and his beans today come from a place in Mexico, a small town in the southernmost state uh, called Bella Vista. And the coffee in that small town is the sole source of its income. And due to a number of different geopolitical and economic factors, 85% of the women in that town are widows or single mothers. And so balancing those challenges, one woman, Rosalba Sofuentes, formed an organization and 110 women of Bella Vista now grow and sell their coffee through this woman-led and run collective called Women's Group Coffee. Wow. So not only we enjoy some fantastic coffee beans coming from their area um, that have been carefully cultivated by them, we're able to empower these women, their families, and a sustaining industry in Bella Vista. Very cool story. So do all of these women, are they competing against each other? No. So part of the, the thrust of the organization is, is getting fair trade pricing for them. And so they actually sell together. Um, and there's different types of coffee beans, right? Uh, bourbon, Couture, you may have heard some of those kinds of names. Uh, and depending on which person or which grower they are, they may specialize in a certain bean. And so they'll actually kind of bring them together and sell them as blends occasionally or single origin. Very cool. And does does the Anchor Coffee House, are they being supplied by their former employee? Yeah, so if you go to Anchor, uh, they have a whole bunch of different kinds of uh, coffee roasters on hand. Chance, of course, is always on the shelf. Uh, and his uh, Chance Coffee's uh, roastery actually has their own cafe that they've opened up in. Uh, we're going deep down into Windsor in information here, but... Uh, there's a subsection, a, a, an old neighborhood uh, in Windsor called Ford City, uh, which is where our Essex engine plant is located, uh, where we build engines at Ford. And uh, much like Dearborn was you know, a, a town founded by Henry Ford, uh, Ford City was the same on the Canadian side. Uh, so there's some, some rich and old Ford history in that town as well. So Chance Coffee is on the main drag uh, in old Ford City. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. Well, very fitting that you, you brought it to us. Um, I'm going to ask you first, so I don't have to answer first. What are you tasting? What notes are you getting? Well, I get to cheat because I have read the label and told me what flavors there are. So I will give you one spoiler. There's three that are listed. Mm -hmm. uh, the first one being from Canada is maple syrup. Ironically. I was going to say that. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, but you'll notice they are darker, kind of earthy, deeper tones. What else are you picking up on? 
No, keep going. What are the other two? <laughs> I'll, t- I'll let you know if that's what I was thinking. Uh, how about chocolate? Yep. Chocolate and uh, blackberry is the third. Exactly. Like you read my mind. Absolutely. Well, all right. While we enjoy uh, a cup, can I can I tell us a story? Please do. All right. As we usually do, we'll start with a, a story that sort of leads us into what we're going to talk about today. So this one time, my brother, who lives in Louisville, Kentucky, home of Great Bourbon, uh, was planning an interactive event for a charity a few years ago, and naturally a great option was a bourbon tour. The idea he had was to book time at one of the many distilleries in town and have their expert distillers and tasters guide everyone through the complicated world of bourbon tasting. They explain exactly how much to place on your tongue and what to do with it, how to breathe into the glass, uh, and what notes you should be tasting and identifying, because uh, not everyone's as good as, as I am with you know, tasting coffee. I can identify all the notes that you said. Uh, so <laughs> it, it, they, they walk you through all of that and, and also how to cleanse your palate in between tastings uh, to get ready for the next one. Uh, so it's known to be a very guided experience because these people are, are experts on this niche subject. Uh, so when COVID lockdown mandates hit the city during the middle of my brother's planning of this event, he didn't see how something like this could be possible. Uh, but after a little research, he found a company that brings the, the bourbon tasting experience to you by shipping these tasting kits to everyone's door. Uh, no guide, no expert, just a box shipped to everyone who purchased a ticket, and you'd have this tasting experience on your own time. Uh, this sounded disappointing, honestly, and intimidating at first, to be honest. But, uh, you know, the whole idea is to have your hand held by this bourbon expert. Um, but when I opened the box, I immediately kind of felt taken care of. They had three small unmarked bottles of bourbon, a bottle of distilled water, three small tasting glasses, uh, one small instruction card, and a colorful wheel diagram labeled tasting wheel. In the center of the circle uh, were the primary categories of tastes. These were wood, grain, spice, sweet, and fruit and floral. And then the next, next ring just outside of that circle had the subcategories of each primary taste getting a little more specific with the flavors. And then two more subsequent rings got even more specific with flavor notes like stewed apples, maple syrup, mint, and leather. It took almost no thinking to understand how to follow this tasting guide, uh, and, and we got to instead focus on enjoying the experience and identifying the notes that we tasted. Altogether, there were dozens of unique flavors that you could be tasting, uh, and without this simple and obvious-to-follow wheel, I wouldn't have known where to even start in identifying what I was tasting. So over the next hour, my brother and I sat and we had a great time feeling like the expert tasters with extremely little instruction. And it's all because of how they designed this experience and specifically the tasting wheel to make it really easy for anyone to take on. I am thoroughly filled with FOMO at the moment. So do you find yourself finding flavors and tasting notes in other things or in other bourbons later on without this wheel or this process? You know, it's a good, that's a good question. I kind of wish I printed this out and, and kept it in like a wallet size format so I could think about it. But no, I feel like unless I did this a dozen times, I wouldn't know how to think 
like this wheel makes mm-hmm. me think. So no, I haven't really just stopped and, and thought about the notes on my own. Interesting. Phil, before we go any further, uh, I wanted to bring in our integration expert. Um, and if you're wondering which one we're bringing in on the show today, Fred, uh, we're pleased to inform you that Amanda is back with us here in the studio. Uh, Mandy Ooh. is away on a remote assignment, uh, but more about that later. Amanda, welcome back, and thanks for being here. Happy to be here. We paid her to say that. Thank you. Uh, so today, in the realm of the, the four customer values that we drive and design towards, we're diving into the third one, which is intuitive. And when it comes to customer experiences, things should just make sense. Intuitive can encapsulate a lot of things, um, but it has sort of three main elements that we're calling out at the moment, which is uh, one being proactivity, predicting and planning customer needs in a way that the experience flows the way a customer expects that they should. Um, Phil, when you open a package, or Amanda, are you the avid instructional manual reader, or do you chuck that to the side and hope for the best? I refuse to read instructions. I am like uh, the stereotypical like guy who doesn't ask for instruction instructions. Um, and if I, I'll just start getting into it. And if I end, you know, the project and the furniture is finished, and I have three extra screws, I'm like, well, guess we'll figure that out later. Um, so no, I, I really rely on things to be intuitive. Um, and yeah, and I, I don't want to have to read something. Mm-hmm. I don't have the time. Who has time? No, no one me. has time. Yeah. Yeah. For me. Same thing. I, I feel like if it's something I'm at least somewhat familiar with, I'm just going to try to wing it and figure it out. But I also take into consideration the the risk and the impact of getting it wrong. Yeah. Right? If it's some piece of technology that I'm installing on my house, I'm probably going to play it safe and read the instructions. But if it's furniture, I've turned a few screws. I could, I could figure it out. If not, I'll, then I'll break open the instructions. That's a great point. That's fair. I, I got burned once putting a uh, desk together. And it, for whatever reason, it was until the final step that you realized the whole thing was backwards. No. Side A was actually side B and I had to dismantle no. it also. I read instruction manuals a little more judiciously than I <laughs> used to because of that. Uh, but I'm in the same way. I would rather just get to the next thing, right? Make it work, make it turn yeah. on. Um, but regardless of where you fall in that spectrum, an intuitive experience that was designed proactively allows you to set up a product without ever needing to break the sticker seal on that manual, unless you want to, of course. Uh, The second element is innovation. Using transactional and behavioral data about your customers and the process they follow to uncover new ways to automate steps and delight them. To me, this this reminds me of, you know, when I get in the car at a certain time every day, my phone will tell me, hey, it'll it'll take you five minutes to get to that, that place you always go to at this time, uh, the gym or the coffee shop you like. Do you want directions? Um, and I think this is super cool, but it's it's really possible to overdo it or do it wrong. I mean, for one, uh, if it's a short trip, like a five-minute trip, no, I don't want directions because you know I go there every day, so stop asking me if I want directions. And two, it can very easily venture into the creepy, invasive side. Um, you know, you know exactly what I do every day at this time. Um, so I think it's a, a delicate line. Yeah, and, and the the benefit of the innovation part, right, is is introducing that delight element. So in your example, um, no, I don't need instructions. I just went there yesterday and the day before that. I'm going tomorrow too. I know how to get there in my sleep. But you can give me real-time traffic 
while I'm getting there, right? And so I actually have that coming to the office sometimes. I'll punch it in anyway. I know where I'm going. Yep. But it'll tell me, hey, look how there's an accident. Go around it, right? Yeah. And so that that piece of understanding and automation and, and introducing value is, is key to an intuitive experience. Yeah, and, and I think it's because you know the other features that the product offers, like making sure you get the fastest route. So mm -hmm. if I'm going to the coffee shop five minutes away, I'm taking one road to get there. I, I don't need... I don't need to click anything. But going to the office, like you said, I know how to get there, but I know that my phone could show me if I need to avoid my usual route, so I, I do appreciate it in that circumstance. Mm -hmm. So it's proactivity, innovation, and the third one is empathy. Understanding the journey you are sending your customer on and building touch points to have a logical flow. Uh, if you think of all those call centers that you've had to call into, you know, you dial in, there's an automated response and requires you to enter your account number, maybe your birth date, maybe your visa number or, or credit card number, whatever your, your verification info is into your keypad. And so you got to enter in a whole long string of characters. Uh, maybe you speak into it to verify who you are. And then you finally reach a live body and you talk to an agent and they ask you for the same info you just gave. And then, oh, what do you know? We need to transfer you to the next agent because they're the specialist for your request. And unfortunately, they need to verify you a third time. And, and as a customer, whether it's a call center or another similar kind of process, right, you hit this breaking point where you go, this isn't intuitive at all, right? This doesn't make sense. And so in this episode, we really want to dive into and uncover what does an intuitive experience look like? Well said. Yeah, awesome. Um, so I think that empathy part uh, really kind of speaks to, to me um, and, and my other, my partner in crime, um, who we'll talk to here in a few minutes. One thing that we did want to uh, dive into today uh, was not only what makes something intuitive, but how did it get to the point where it was intuitive to our customers? Um, so, you know, if you remember, um, you know, intuitive means, right, that they can understand it immediately or they can do something without thinking or without reasoning. Um, but that looks like that looks different for each person, right? And, and um, our past experiences and our past knowledge all influence, um, you know, how we perceive something um, and, and if we think it's intuitive or not. Um, so one thing we really try to do in CX is focus on usability testing and other design methodologies. Um, and those help us pull out the nuggets of that human interaction, um, really trying to, to see what the customer is thinking, um, see how they do things normally without any influence or without any um, interference from us. Um, and we really want to make sure that we, we understand how all of our customers are interacting with our product or service. Um, and so we do this in a couple different ways, right? We, we mentioned usability testing, uh, but another thing we like to focus on is uh, like mindsets and personas. So mindsets and personas are, are of a similar vein, but just with a few nuances, but basically they, they help us uh, look at our customers as actual people, right? We assign them, um, you know, different roles or different ways of thinking or different ways of getting somewhere. And by, by looking at all of those different mindsets and personas, uh, we can really truly make sure that we are developing, um, you know, these intuitive experiences and these, these great experiences for our customers. Here at Screwed Furniture, we believe that well-built furniture should take time to assemble. Unfortunately, nobody here has time for that. So <laughs> that's why we decided to make you do it. Our custom kits are equal parts challenging and unique. No two pieces are the same and we encourage you to make it your own. That's why we don't include fastening hardware. We're confident that you already have a few loose screws. 
To showcase our company's rich European history, we've written our instructions in our once universally common language, Latin. Pulcalis frigus. That means pretty cool. And forget about diagrams and pictures. You aren't a little baby, are you? Each piece is coded with the Latin alphabet and Roman numerals. If the Roman aqueducts are still standing, why not your dresser? You'll earn your relaxation on your new couch. And if you ever run into problems and need assistance, just keep trying. You got this. Screw it furniture. It's as simple as I, 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 V, 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 I, V, I, I. Well, as you both know, we are on the hunt for Fred in accounting. Uh, Fred, you are welcome to get in touch with us. We invited you to do that in episode two. Um, we haven't yet quite gotten your emails, so uh, we're looking for you, and we actually have Mandy on the hunt for you now. Uh, Mandy, can you hear us? I, I can. I can hear you. Awesome. Where are you at right now? Well, I'm here on the scene in uh, sunny Florida at the beach uh, so far. No Fred, I have searched numerous places, but all I found are a few lizards and some pelicans. So. Awesome, I, I noticed you chose a warm location to start your hunt. I did, I figured that Fred may need a vacation um, from maybe some of the, the things that he encounters with IT. So he, if he was gonna take a vacation, I figured it would be somewhere sunny. Uh, so I started here in Florida. Next, I'll go to the Bahamas. <laughs> Beautiful. Uh, do you know what Fred looks like? You know, I don't. I've just been walking up and down the beach yelling, Fred! Fred! And so far, no takers. Uh, but he may know who I am, so uh, he may just be avoiding me. All right, Fred. Well, if you hear a crazed woman yelling Fred, uh, that may be our very own Mandy. Thank you, Mandy. Keep on the hunt. Let us know if you hear anything. You got it. I'll update you next time. All right, Phil. It's time for what is probably our favorite segment. Hit us. Fast, 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 fast. Too fast. Uh, so my fast fact is a Gardner study, uh, and it found that uh, customers agreed that if they realized something new about their needs or their own goals, they were almost two times more likely to buy uh, that product or more of that product. Um, so I'm sure you've all encountered uh, some form of this, and I, I promise we'll get to the intuitive part of this. Um, but since um, since the goal, right, of, of companies is to, to sell things to their customers, I thought it was um, an interesting uh, path that I'll, I'll take you down here. But uh, so I'm, I'm sure you've all encountered some form of this. There's like a quiz on social media that says, you know, um, take this quiz and learn your body type and we'll sell you this protein powder that works just for you or, um, you know, something of the sort, right? Uh, for me, um, I'm super into skincare and like beauty and all of that fun stuff. Um, and as we continue to become a more connected and, and digital world, uh, the ways that we get those products is shifting. So we used to be able to go into the store and maybe we tried something on or um, you know, something like that, but either, uh, you know, because of COVID, right, we didn't have that opportunity or just because it's easier to do it at home. Um, companies are having to, to kind of shift how they offer um, these products, right, to their customers. Um, so I wanted to share some additional context uh, and I'm going to focus on L'Oreal uh, and they use a tool that um, gives their customers an opportunity to uh, learn a little bit more about their skincare and their beauty uh, regimen 
uh, and offer them a great experience. So um, L'Oreal understands that skincare is a vitally important part of a person's well-being, and I can definitely attest to that. Um, it's definitely something that I uh, really enjoy taking time to do, right? It's like a whole routine and it's, you know, self-care. Um, and they came up with a mobile application called Skin Genius, and it combines personal assistance with a course-changing digital experience. Uh, and it leverages some AI, and it does an assessment of the customer's unique skincare. Um, and so a user will upload a photo of their face and the AI will analyze it, tell you, you know, your skin's dry or oily or, um, you know, et cetera. And then they offer you uh, products that might help you, um, you know, achieve the, the skin of your dreams, if you will. Um, so, you know, going back to the original fact, right, um, these customers are learning most likely learning something new about, um, you know, themselves or what they need. Um, and it's, it's prompting them to uh, continue to engage with that brand and, and purchase their product. Um, and then it also offers an in-person beauty advisor um, <laughs> where they can talk to this person, right, and, and learn a little bit more about their goals. Um, but the idea that they're using an AI-powered, um, you know, tool that's on a mobile application, all you do is upload a photo of your face, right, and it spits out this... Um, you know, this, this, this new regimen that you should use, right? It's really intuitive to do, um, and it ends up getting the customer what they need, um, you know, or what they're looking for. And drives loyalty, it sounds like. Yes. It's yeah. really interesting. I, I can see how our values are overlapping, and I think that's totally okay. That's how it should be. Yeah. You know, the more L'Oreal personalizes this experience, getting to know you, getting data on you, they're able to anticipate your needs and bring something right to you so you don't have to think about what products to buy they they sort of bring it right to you and make it very intuitive absolutely yep yeah there's a couple different values in there for sure um yep that sort of plays into the theme of my fast fact uh which is very simple and, and very fast uh, which is that 81 percent of all customers according to harvard business review 81 percent of all customers prefer to attempt the solution to their own problems before reaching out to a live rep so the application is kind of simple, really. Therefore, let's make that customer experience intuitive, since we already know that that process is where 81% of them are headed first anyway. So in your own space, whether you're you know, solutioning a problem for a customer uh, or you're designing a process or an experience end to end, um, identify your customer touch points and their preferred behaviors and anticipate where they prefer to head and lean into ways that you can innovate new value and delight them in that space. I love that. And if you can make it so they're able to do it on their own, since they're trying that anyway, uh, it kind of takes some of the pressure off of you as well. Mm -hmm. You don't need to worry about supporting them as much because you've kind of taken care of them on the front end. and They already got what they need. Yeah, and empower them where they are, yeah. right? Awesome. Uh, my fast fact is a little less fact. fast. No, it's equally fact. It's less fast. We can edit that out. Uh, but... When we open a new computer, you know, we see several very familiar icons, uh, icons which require no training on our end to know what their purpose is. The trash can is shaped like a trash can. Our folders are shaped like folders. The calculator looks like a real old school calculator. Now, we've all been using computers for uh, a long time with similar icons, and we probably don't give them much thought, but for a first-time user of a computer, this intuitive icon design can be extremely helpful. And believe it or not, the icons that we know and love today haven't changed much since their creation. 
I want to take us back to 1981 to introduce you to the Xerox 8010 Star Information System, which was the first commercial computer to use the desktop graphic model with the icons that we know today. So through the 70s, computers existed, of course, but they were these huge, expensive machines that utilized punch cards to run programs. They were designed for an organization, not a consumer, and certainly not without a lot of training in order to have the skills to even interact with them. Um, and the company's next challenge was to fix this and create a computer that anyone could sit down at and start producing value from it. So David Canfield Smith was a Xerox employee who created what's called the desktop metaphor, the concept of having icons on the screen that look like real objects that these workers use every day in their physical environment. The folders, the floppy disk, the printer with a piece of paper stuck in the top. Uh, David said in a speech that he literally looked around his office and created icons using what he saw. So simple, right? But these are things that are so ingrained in our, our mental models. So he fused the physical world uh, everyone was familiar with with this new unfamiliar digital world at the time. And something I thought was interesting was the difficulty that the Xerox team said they had with designing the document icon. Uh, trying to resemble a physical piece of paper, the icon started as just a rectangle, but they found that was too simple. People didn't know what that rectangle was, uh, and they experimented with shadows and stacks of pages, probably with the help of user feedback, and finally arrived on the rectangle with the folded over corner that we all probably recognize as a document today. It's really fascinating to me that we've been doing seemingly some sort of design thinking since the creation of, of computers, basically, or at least the consumer computer. Um, something that I feel like we talk about now is as if we have just started doing design thinking in the world. Um, but obviously, this example is a great example, and I'm sure it's not the only one of how did how do we define what a document looks like so that it's recognizable to to everyone um, and I think it kind of goes back to our, our intro about intuitive and what that looks like um, you know and how our our own perceptions and, and experiences and past knowledge etc um, kind of shape what a document might look like to us in the digital world uh, so it's really fascinating yeah I, I think it's it can be easy to think about examples of these things when you look back at like huge new inventions like yeah. the consumer-facing computer. We look back at that and think, oh yeah, they, they did some of these, these principles. Mm -hmm. um, but it's just as important when you're trying to redesign existing things like we're doing in our work yep. um, to kind of get back to basics and think about how, the, how our customer interacts with our experiences. Absolutely. Lastly, I would say it's interesting how uh, timeless sometimes intuitive things can be, right? When you look at the floppy disk representing safe, uh, I have a seven-year-old son who asked me about that button recently, and he asked what that was. And so then I realized I had to explain several generations worth of <laughs> tech-saving technology <laughs> or, or document-saving technology um, to get to the concept of this floppy disk. It almost wasn't even worth it. Uh, but it's so intuitive and it's just so timeless that we just continue to use that thing because it made sense and yeah. it still makes sense. Mm -hmm. Even though we don't use the physical version, we just know the digital version of the floppy disk. Yeah. Yeah. And, oh, I want to add uh, the trash can example. The Xerox Star actually didn't 
didn't include that one. That came in the, the next computer, the Apple uh, Lisa from Steve Jobs. He came up with the trash can. So kind of different, different companies kind of iterated on this idea and uh, got all the icons that we still use. All right, I am really excited for our guest today, not only because he is my friend, but because he has an extremely fascinating job that is a, a world very different from ours, but I think we're gonna notice some, some similar themes and, and commonalities that we can take away. Um, Brad went to school with my older brother, um, and they immediately became close friends, and, and Brad and I have known each other for years through, through my brother, and we really grew especially close the past few months on my brother's bachelor party and the wedding. Um, so Brad, it's good to have you here, man. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for, uh, thank you for having me. And I, w I was your brother's TA, that's how we met. It was an official way to meet. That's right, that's right, you were the boss. Uh, so Brad, for our listeners, can you give us a, a rundown of your professional background? Sure. Um, so I, I did meet uh, Phil's brother, Mikey, at University of Michigan. Uh, so that's where I studied industrial and operations engineering. Uh, my first professional uh, role was as uh, an Army engineer officer. I did ROTC while at Michigan. Uh, so I had a four-year commitment afterwards. Uh, from there, I went and pursued an MBA for two years uh, at UConn. Uh, good to be basketball champions there. And then after that, went to Gartner, which was uh, one of the world's leading IT research firms. Um, and I did some management consulting work in New York City for them. And then the past almost five years, I've been now at New York Presbyterian Hospital, which is New York City's uh, largest health system um, as a clinical systems engineer. Right on. Yeah, we, we utilize a lot of Gartner resources. I think we've read some of your articles. Um, <laughs> Clinical. I don't, I don't write the articles. I'm not that <laughs> smart. Um, I would use the articles that were more broad, and clients would ask us to um, essentially customize it to their specific problems they were facing. Cool. Interesting. All right. Yeah. Clinical systems engineer. What is that? So we focus in doing, we're all internal consultants. So I guess I'll preface it by that. So we work for the hospital. Uh, although previously my last job was, was external consulting, um, and we're working with the care teams to improve their care delivery processes. So it's a, it's a process improvement role. Uh, there's about seven of us on the team. Half of us um, have a clinical background. The other half have more of an industrial uh, engineering background. Awesome. So as, uh, as Phil alluded to, right, we, uh, we're in the customer experience space and we have uh, a couple uh, values or principles that we like to, um, like to have our teams focus on. Um, and the one that we're focusing on today uh, to make the uh, experience better is intuitive um, or intuition in general, right? Um, so uh, obviously that means designing an experience um, in a way that makes the most sense to the customer. So what we want to know is how that value kind of comes to life in your role. Um, so it's funny when, uh, when Phil mentioned that to me about intuition, I don't think it's ever a word I had used or heard of in the context of the type of work I do. Now I'm not saying it's not used in the industry I'm in, but I think it's actually used a little differently. So 
you know, with Ford being in manufacturing, you know, when I think of intuitive design, I think of my iPhone, right? And how quickly it is to navigate through it, even when I, you know, maybe I hadn't previously owned one or my Mazda car and all the features on it are very intuitive. I didn't have to have someone explain it to me. Um, a lot of what I view my role as doing is not necessarily making processes intuitive, but making them um, seamless uh, and make and I guess making them uh, hard to generate defects from. Hmm. Uh, so I don't think necessarily anyone's going to walk into a process and instinctually know what to do with some of the processes that we have, but we try to design them in a way where. Um, you know, you reduce the, the forms of waste that can exist um, and you increase the rate of quality. Where I, where I hear the word intuitive used actually more in healthcare is I think from the clinician perspective. So you'll hear about like a doctor's intuition and that is more, um, it's interesting when you're saying how does it frame to the patient's perspective, right? That is informing them what tests to order what imaging to be completed, and that greatly affects the, the patient experience because that is going to change the trajectory of, of them going through the value stream. You know, not every patient that presents to the emergency department with a headache is going to get an MRI done, right? There's going to be some provider, uh, provider meaning uh, an MD, a PA, an NP uh, of, of what to do. Maybe very different than I think the question you might have been looking for uh, when I think of like manufacturing-based uh, design for a patient experience, but I think that's literally where the word intuition is used most often in healthcare. No, that's it's a great story and really interesting, and it, it makes me think about how in a hospital setting you have a lot of people with expert knowledge and things that they like to do a certain way um, because they know it best. Do you find it hard to make processes and make changes to processes in an environment yes. like that? Yeah. I'm like, I don't even need you to finish. I know exactly where you're going <laughs> with this question. Absolutely. Um, I think it's hard. I'm very, I, I, I'm very um, respectful and aware of the amount of education and knowledge that these individuals have, but I'm also aware of uh, what happens when you have too much variation in a process, whether it's a manufacturing process and the, you know, the, the item that comes out at the end or same thing with, with care delivery. And what's interesting is when we notice some of our, you know, lead, um, doctors that are overseeing different areas, we have, uh, one, for example, that we just pulled from Chicago and he's over all of heart care for New York Presbyterian hospital. And he noticed this problem with variation in the advanced heart um, clinics that we have. And so what he uh, brought with him back from Chicago looks very much conveniently with you guys being from Ford, like a, uh, a service manual. You know, this is what you do for your car at 3,000, 5,000, 10,000, 20,000 miles. But you change that to a heart uh, a patient with advanced um, cardiac conditions. And what do you do for them? Uh, during each stage, each milestone of the progression of their specific heart uh, diseases. What, what tests do you order? What imaging should you order? What procedures should be done? It's not that everything is written in stone, 
but it tends to be um, a strong guide based on uh, kind of many of the best practices coming together because um, yeah, I, I, everyone gets trained a little bit differently, right? There's so many medical schools and then you're very heavily influenced by your preceptors, right? Those doctors or nurses that are, are training you um, that it often leads to a lot of variation. And as you know, a lot of times the first step to improvement is to standardize. And then once you've standardized, you can then create some pretty massive improvements from there. Yeah, I, I can see how in that world, some processes can be rigid and exact and need to be. And then some of them, like you said, they can be kind of loose suggestions and the doctor can or nurse or whoever can fill in the the blanks with their expertise um, one of the ways we look at a process being intuitive is how can we make sure the the customer or the user doesn't have to think they don't have to think about how to interact with the the solution we're delivering so they can just focus on doing what they need to do do you, does that ring any bells with you? And do you have any examples yep. of how you've made it so the provider doesn't have to think? Yeah, um, so actually the first example that came to mind, I, I feel like the correlation I would draw here, analogy I draw here is in like the Pocoyo concept, like the error proofing. Um, so for example, in healthcare, uh, behind the patient's bed, right where their head would be, there's a couple different um, outlets to different types of air. Right, you have oxygen, which is a different um, you know, concentration of ingredients than medical air, which is a more purified form. So it is. it was not, uh, I don't want to say not uncommon, it had occurred in the past where uh, someone could accidentally hook the tubing for one into the wrong uh, outlet and give that to the patient. But what you end up doing is they now have different insertion pins. So if you think about a a kitchen appliance, right? Some have the three prong, some have the two prong. If something has three prongs, you can't insert it into a, an outlet that only has two. It just it just doesn't work like that. Um, so it you could be very tired in the morning plugging in your coffee maker, and you would be prevented from making that problem. So with that in mind, there are um, several things at the hospital that uh, kind of have that polka yoke uh, error proofing concept uh, attached to them. Hmm. Interesting. So, so now are the, the holes, are they all different for each type of air, the plugins? Yeah, they're, the, the location of where like a certain pin would get inserted when you're depending on the type of tubing that goes um, is different for each one. So you wouldn't be able to insert it. Same, it's the same concept when you're filling up um, uh, your car with most, most cars take 87 gasoline, right? You can't actually fit a diesel pump into a gasoline car because the nozzle's too big, it won't go in. So if you're on your phone texting, not paying attention, like you can't make that mistake. You can do the reverse. You can accidentally put gas in a diesel, but it doesn't do as much damage. That's right. Interesting. So you mentioned in your space, intuition sometimes looks like looking at making processes seamless or reducing waste uh, defects, right? Um, we look at ROI uh, of a, a customer experience, right, in, in a similar kind of lens, right? When we, when we smooth out that experience or we find ways to eliminate waste or duplication, complication, right? Uh, there, there's ways to simplify that experience, which translates to, you know, smoother delivery for us, smoother experience for the customer. Uh, how do you measure um, that kind of seamless, intuitive kind of a process in your space. 
um, you know, reducing waste or anything like that? Is there a framework or is there sort of a, a model that you follow? Um, I mean, I think in terms of methodologies, I would say uh, healthcare relies heavily on um, lean methodology and um, IHI, Institute for Healthcare Improvements uh, model as well. I'm not going to say there isn't Six Sigma um, type frameworks used, but I, I think probably less so in healthcare. Partly, I think just because there's, um, I think lean tends to address, um, I don't see more human focused uh, opportunities and things that maybe are, say, lower hanging, where, you know, we're probably at, I don't know what our Sigma level is now, but we are far from Six Sigma. So I think that there's probably more more opportunity that we're addressing with lean. Um, I think, you know, we have different indicators that we use when we're looking at, um, I, I think a lot of the ones you're looking at like efficiency. So a patient's length of stay, you know, we've had projects looking at um, how quickly we're turning over ORs in between patients. Um, what's your total lead time for uh, CTs, you know, from ordering it to the time it's completed. So. Um, I think each each specific project will have, you know, different, um, I guess, different things we're measuring. But uh, if efficiency is one of the focus areas, you know, we'll always have a, a relevant metric then. But I think we're always cognizant, I think, especially in this field of trade-offs in efficiency for um, safety or quality just because um, the product is a patient. <laughs> sure. That, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, measure what matters, right? And, and something that we've tried to do is come up with, you know, standard metrics that we can use across any journey. And, and that's great. And it allows you to compare journey to journey. But we find a lot of times when we actually dive into the thing we're studying, we need to get a little more specific with the metrics so we can actually see how well we're doing at improving that, that journey. So that, that rings a bell with me. Has there ever been a time where you identified an improvement that you should make to a process, but because of the nature of a hospital being critical and you can't shut it down, you got pushback from the other stakeholders who didn't want to stop and try this new thing? I wouldn't say it was, it was for any one specific thing. I, I think just in general, I I feel like hospitals operate at two speeds. One is like dead full out sprint. It's pretty much during the winter season. So right now where you have colds, flu, um, RSV, COVID all going around, we're bursting at the seams. You know, we are at capacity. And as you know, from manufacturing, you probably want to be running somewhere in the eighties. Like you're pretty much close to hundred percent capacity throughputs getting, um, getting really bottled up. And I think the last thing on people's mind is like thinking about how to make the process better. Everyone's kind of just treading water to stay afloat. And then you have the reverse where maybe kind of during the summers where people are outside, diseases are less um, transmitted because we're not indoors. Uh, everyone's now just trying to relax and catch their breath. And you know, then you have everyone that's off on vacation um, kind of gearing up for next season. So it's, it, it always feels like there's those two speeds and it never feels like there's, uh, a great time to, to do improvement. I think part of it is the leaders, you know, uh, of a lot of the improvement methodologies say that the, the organizations that tend to do best are those where 
you know, it's part of the culture that your job is to do your job and improve your job. I wouldn't say that that is embedded in our culture or many hospitals cultures that I've, I've seen so far. Um, but I, I, I think we are absolutely making um, incremental improvements. And I think part of my job is helping uh, frontline staff and those local leaders make improvement a little bit easier to do, um, help them really structure the work um, so that, you know, I'm not doing it for them, I'm partnering with them, um, but that it doesn't seem so much of a, a monumental climb to try something new. I love that idea. You know, making improvements is not an item we do. It's it's a culture we live and it, it starts with everybody. That's That's really good. And I think we can take that back for sure. Awesome. Brad, I uh, think I speak for the team here when I say we got a, a wealth of, of very, very valuable information and insight from you. Can't thank you enough for your time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, guys. All right. Before we wind up, why don't we uh, just state something that we're taking away, like we do each episode, uh, from what we've heard today. Uh, I'll kick us off. Um one of the things that I walk away from in terms of uh, our topic today is that intuitive as a customer value is sort of that tipping point between a logically established process that I can walk through on my own, uh, but is smart enough to interact with me in an effective manner. In other words, as a customer, I expect that I should be able to figure it out and it should be able to make up the difference when I can't. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so for me, the, the one thing that stood out the most um, in our previous podcasts, we've had our guests on, um, they have been primarily dealing with their actual end customer. So with Kyle, with selling the coffee, um, you know, we had the, the personal trainer, right? So he's training his actual customer. Um, and, and likewise, with the, the mortgage gentleman we had on, right? Um, with uh, Brad here, it, it kind of almost felt like... Um, a little bit more relatable to, to where we are, right, in, in TechCX, which is we are helping the employee with a good experience so that they, in turn, can provide Ford's end customer a great experience mm -hmm. when they are purchasing their car. Um, so with Brad, it almost felt like the, the doctors, the nurses, the caregivers were his customers, um, at least from a improving the process standpoint um, or, it, you know, in some regard. And by the doctors having a seamless process, um, they could provide better care um, and then better act on, uh, as he called it, their intuition, right? So their past knowledge, trying to make sure the, the customer or the, um, the patient gets the best care. Um, so if, if those processes to provide that care are intuitive for the doctor, then, you know, the, the, the customer or the, the patient um, or the customer, I guess, <laughs> really, um, is, is getting in the care that they deserve, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, removing barriers for those people to do their job. Exactly. Uh, I think that definitely rings true for us and what we do. And, and our first guest, actually, Kyle, talked about that as well, mm -hmm. uh, how he treats yeah. his employees, makes them feel empowered, mm -hmm. and, and gives them the tools to do their job. Uh, that Then everything else takes care of itself, and the customers end up being taken care of yeah. uh, because everyone in the chain is. Um, and, and Brad talked about how you know, continuous improvement is a culture and it's something that we all should be trying to have as an everyday thing that we believe in. And it's not just a item on the OKRs. Mm -hmm. um, 
and that kind of leads into to my takeaway. Um, you know, making an experience intuitive to me feels like making it obvious and exactly how you would expect it without having to think about how to do it. Because thinking can be hard, and thinking about how to interact with a journey takes away from your capacity to focus on the real goal or your job. Um, and in Brad's world, um, this kind of this looks like um, making it impossible for a provider to do the wrong thing, like he talked about with the changing the shapes of the plugs. Um, they don't have to think about which plug to plug in where because it's impossible to mess it up. And he eliminates the potential for errors and waste because in the medical world, that can mean really bad things. So I'm wondering if there are things Ford IT can do to make it impossible for our customers to go down wrong paths. Um, so that's not even a possibility. We hope you all enjoyed this episode and found something to take away when it comes to making experiences intuitive for customers. In our next episode, we are going to round out our epic values with perhaps the trickiest one of all, contextual. Of course, we'll be tasting another unique cup of coffee. And until next time, always remember the old quote, you can have any Tech CX podcast you want as long as it's black and blue.